0: And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying,
1: Now, the question that I want to start with this morning is, how can we be right at the very center of what God is doing in the world? Um, uh, maybe twenty years or so, not quite that long ago, I was speaking at a Christian Union house party, um, and I met a student I think well, i can 't remember her name i 'm going to call her Stella um, and um, she was telling me about the situation that was happening in her home church, um, and she was saying that the church was quite divided um, and that some people in the church um, really, really wanted to get on board with well, with what they perceived to be a great work of God, there was a revivalist in Florida um, who was kind of on lots of the TV channels, who was doing amazing things, apparently. And they really wanted to line up with this revivalist in Florida. Um, and then there were other people in the church who thought that was all a bit silly and probably bunkum. And the whole thing was quite divisive. Um, and the student sala said to me, um, I don't know what to do. I really want to be on board with what God is doing. I don't know what to do. Now, the truth is that at the time, I was probably slightly dismissive, um, as in why do you need to worry about what's happening in Florida? But actually, that, that desire, I really want to be on board with what God is doing, that is absolutely right, isn't it? If the living God's purposes for the world, for this age, really are happening through a man in Florida, then your prayer should be there. Your vision should be there. You might even want to be there. But what is the center of what God is doing in the world. A lot of times it doesn't really feel like it's very close to us, does it? Um, Again, about a decade ago, um, I was getting ready um, to embark on an adventure um, in Singapore with my wife. Um, And it's all very exciting, um, going overseas to do ministry. And for most of that time, it felt like we were really going to be doing something significant. But I remember having a chat with um, my brother-in-law, um, and he was asking me how I was feeling about it. I said, Do you know what? I'm, I'm a little bit worried. I'm a bit afraid that when I get there, it's all going to be very mundane. And to which my brother-in-law said, of course it's going to be mundane. <laughs> of course it's going to be mundane. And the fact is that most ministry, most of the time, does feel very mundane, doesn't it? Maybe in some places particularly. A people meeting in a village hall, um, hearing an average talk, and then drinking bad coffee out of a styrofoam cup and eating bad biscuits, is that really the heart of what God is doing in the world? If you need to be, if you want to be where God is really working, where do you need to be? Well, Matthew's purpose in his gospel is to persuade us that if we are in the business of making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are right at the bullseye of what God is doing in the world. And that's true of every passage in Matthew. The whole of this gospel is driving to the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. But I think it's especially true here this morning, uh, because in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus goes to the epicenter of all of God's purposes in the world up until that moment. And actually, he changes everything uh, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple. It's a really significant moment. And um, actually, it's probably worth saying, and I don't quite know how to say this, that in view of the week that we've just had in the Middle East, it's also quite a sensitive moment. Um, and can I just say that um, uh, it's absolutely right um, that we feel grieved about things that are going on and that our prayers are there. Um, and we feel distressed about some of the atrocities that we might have heard about in the last week. Um, But I also want to say that we need to be careful that we don't let our sort of feelings about what's happening there now um, get in the way of listening carefully to what the Lord Jesus is showing us here in Matthew um, about God's purposes for the world um, and where things are going. Um, And so I just say that just in case that does get in the way, um, let's try to listen carefully um, to the Lord Jesus. It's a sensitive moment, perhaps now. It's, It's certainly a significant moment. Jesus entered the temple. Uh, The way that Matthew has told the story of his gospel, um, Jesus has not yet been to the temple um, up until this moment through the whole course of his public ministry. We've been building up to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem for a while, ever since chapter 16. um, And now um, he's not just in Jerusalem, he's in the epicentre. The temple in Jerusalem, it was the the most important building in the city. Um, Actually, it's probably the most important building in the ancient world. Um, it had been the center of God's purposes for a thousand years. Now, let's imagine that you divide the history of Israel into three main phases, and they can all be defined with reference to the temple. Uh, phase one uh, of the, 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 the 600 years before the exile, uh, where this building uh, was the place where God dwelt on earth, uh, the place where heaven and earth met. If you wanted to touch heaven, go to this house. Um, and then stage two, the exile when the southern kingdom was overrun by Babylon and people were taken away to Babylonia. And what was the most catastrophic thing that happened in that terrible catastrophe? Well, it was the destruction of this house. And then stage three, the return from exile. And what was the most important task that the people had to do when they came back? It was to rebuild this house. This temple had been the centre of God's purposes for A 1,000 years. And at the moment that Jesus went into the city, maybe you don't know this, at the moment that Jesus went into the city, it had just recently been renovated, as in the whole temple had been rebuilt from the ground up over 46 years, culminating just a year or two before Jesus arrived. And so it was looking bigger and better and shinier than it had done for centuries. If there was a heart to God's purposes on the earth... It was here. And then you get the shock. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. Um, Our first point this morning, Jesus has come to judge the fruitless house. And Jesus came to judge the fruitless house. It's important to see that uh, this is about judgment um, and not just about cleansing. Um, The ESV Bibles that we have in front of us, and I guess lots of uh, Bibles will put a little subheading for this bit. Jesus cleanses the temple. And that can make you think that the point of this is that Jesus is just kind of sweeping out some bad stuff and trying to make it fit for purpose again so that it can carry on um, as it was meant to do. Maybe imagine that this is Jesus with a great anti-capitalist protest. Get the bankers out of the temple and the place will be able to function properly again. Um, I, I grew up going to a church where it was always slightly awkward when we came to this passage. I do remember this um, as a teenager um, of the sermon denouncing the very idea that you'd have buying and selling in the place where you were meeting to, to pray to God and to praise his name together. And you could see everybody's eyes just drifting to the back of the room and to the bookstall. It was ready to... Pursue a raging trade as soon as everything stops. Listen, what Jesus is doing here is much more radical than cleansing the temple. He's come to judge it. And first of all, there's what he does in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the the, the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. The trouble is that those things are things that, well, precisely where you located them, we'll come back to that in a minute, you had to have those things for the temple to function as a temple at all. And pilgrims would come to Jerusalem, to the temple from um, all over um, Judea, but actually from all over the Mediterranean. Um, And they'd come with their local currencies, but they needed to be able to pay for um, things in the temple shekel, which means they needed money changers. And they came from all over the Mediterranean. And do you know what? It's really hard to drove cattle from Rome to Jerusalem. It's basically impossible. And so they bring money so they could buy animals to sacrifice when they got to the temple. There's nothing wrong with the fact that they're selling animals in the tem- uh, near the temple. and Nothing wrong with the fact that they are changing money there near the temple. And actually, by turning over those stalls and driving out those people, Jesus is putting a stop to the sacrifices altogether. He's stopping the temple from functioning as a temple, at least symbolically. And then there's what he says, verse 13. It is written, my house, I mean, it's extraordinary that he says that, isn't it? My house, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And last week we used the pitch perfect tool. And realize that like Anna Kendrick, the key to understanding what Matthew is doing here is to see that these are mashups and two Old Testament tunes that have been put together. Um, And the same is true here um, that um, Jesus is quoting two passages from the Old Testament and smushing them together. um, Isaiah chapter 56 um, and Jeremiah chapter 7. And Isaiah 56, um, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Look forward to God's great ultimate purpose for the temple. There'd be a place where all the nations could come and could know the Lord and have the healing and renewal from him. We'll see more of that in a minute. But Jeremiah chapter 7, but you make it a den of robbers, is the Old Testament's most famous denunciation of what was happening in the temple. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 7 and 8. And when the Lord spoke through Jeremiah, um, in Jeremiah chapter 7 and 8, his point was not you'd better clean up what's happening in the temple and make it slightly better. His point was, this temple is going to be destroyed and there's nothing you can do about it. Within a generation of Jeremiah preaching that sermon, that is indeed what had happened. And within a generation of Jesus speaking these words, this building also um, had been destroyed. Jesus didn't come to cleanse the temple, he came to judge it. The reason is because it was a fruitless house. I suppose you could get three perspectives on this. And um, first of all, it was not encouraging prayer. Now, I said that in verse 12, the main focus is not on an anti-capitalist protest. But it probably is a little bit inappropriate that the court of the Gentiles, the one place that the nations could say their prayers and I could draw near to God, the God of Israel, had been completely filled with commercial operations. Um, My house would be called a house of paying rather than a house of praying. More importantly, verse 14, it was fruitless with regards to healing. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? And even in the middle of controversy, even as he's enacting a judgment on the temple, the most needy, the blind and the lame, come to our loving Lord Jesus and he heals them. The blind received their sights and the lame walked. You know what? Everywhere that Jesus went, and everywhere he went, people were healed and restored and received life. Uh, life just flowed out of him. But it is so striking that it's happening in the temple courts. when the temple had first been built a thousand years before, King Solomon, the builder of this house, had prayed a prayer. You can read it in 1 Kings chapter 8, if you like. Um, And in that prayer, as he consecrated the house, he consecrated it as a place that people with diseases might go to seek healing and to pray towards this place. And it's so striking. The lame and the blind aren't getting that from the temple, They get it from the Lord Jesus standing in the temple courts instead. Most importantly, though, it's fruitless with regards to praise. I look down to verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? It's an incredibly damning scene. The most needy people, the lame and the blind, they come to the temple seeking healing and they find it from the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and these children see what's happened and they do what you should always do when you see the living God answer prayers in spectacular fashion. They burst out into thanks and praise. Hosanna to the son of David and the leaders of the temple, the people who are running this building, they say, it is outrageous. It's outrageous. People are praising God in the temple. It's outrageous. It's like people going to school to learn. Like people going to the library to borrow books. It's outrageous. And Jesus takes them to Psalm 8. Yes, he says, have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? The point of Psalm 8 is not to describe the purpose of the temple, and the point of Psalm 8 is to describe the purpose of children, and the purpose of humanity, and in fact the purpose of the entire creation, and those three things. And what is the purpose of children, and humanity, and the entire creation? It is that people would praise God. That is the whole purpose of the human race is that the earth would be filled with people who will therefore make sure that the earth is full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is what creation is for. And that's what human beings are for. And it's what children are for. And it's what the temple was for. And the people running the temple. Well, they stop it when they see it. It's very damning. You see, whether it's regard to the purpose of people praying to God or finding healing or praising God's name, this was a house that was producing no fruit. And so Jesus has come to judge the fruitless house. Now, now, you might think that this is very surprising. and Certainly it will surprise you if you're here this morning with a very vanilla view of the Lord Jesus. I mean, if you have a very vanilla view of the Lord Jesus, guess what? your view needs to be corrected. Um, and so it certainly surprise you if you have a very vanilla view of the Lord Jesus. But it might surprise you anyway. You might think that anybody who had read their Old Testament would be expecting that when the Messiah came to the temple in Jerusalem, it would be a really joyful thing. This would be a happy homecoming. Uh, perhaps especially if you had been reading the psalm we had last week, Psalm 118, which is a psalm about the arrival of the king in Jerusalem and is a psalm about a happy Homecoming. And so maybe you think it's unsettling, surprising, perhaps, that when Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah, came to the temple, that it didn't receive him with arms open and with joy. But the truth is, if you think that, you haven't been reading your Old Testament carefully enough, because whenever in the Old Testament the Lord draws near to Jerusalem, whenever he comes near to his house, you can almost guarantee that judgment is following In swift order. And if the prophets Isaiah and Malachi teaches anything, it is on the day when the Lord himself comes to Jerusalem, on the day when the Lord comes to his house, it will be for judgment. Oh, that there were one of you that would shut the doors of my temple so that you might stop kindling fire on my altars in vain. The truth is that Jesus was never acting more like God himself and on the moment that his first act in arriving in the temple in Jerusalem was to shut the show down and to judge it. It's not really surprising at all. It's exactly how he expects things to go on the day that the king comes. But it's still a shock, isn't it? Last week, verse 10, we saw that the whole city was shaken. I said it's like an earthquake. And the thought that this building The heart of the world might not be the heart of the world anymore. Well, that is a seismic change. It's like an earthquake. And for a thousand years, the barometer of the relationship between God and his people was what was happening to this house. For a thousand years, when it was functioning, it had been where heaven and earth met, the center of the world. And here it was, reborn, shiny, new refurbished just finished ready to thrive you might think this is the perfect time for the lord to show up to to fill his newly rebuilt house and for this building to be the center of god's purposes again but the truth is that no shine no polish no tradition could cover over this one great fact this was a house that bore no fruit and matthew wants us to understand That from now on, if we want to be at the heart of God's purposes in the world, we don't look to that building. Jesus came to judge the fruitless house. Now, actually, I think this is a point worth taking for us. The Jerusalem temple is unique um, and there really is no equivalent building. um, And there really is no equivalent religious institution um, in any of the structures you would see around us. But it is a point worth taking there is no future for any religious institution, no matter how venerable its heritage, or no matter how magnificent its buildings, no matter how central it has been to the work of God in the past, if it sets itself up against the Lord Jesus and his gospel of repentance and faith and his great work of making disciples who will repent and believe in the gospel But of course, that leaves the question unanswered. Um, If the center of what God is doing is no longer going to be the temple, where is it? Uh, Secondly, this morning, Jesus has come to replace the temple with something better. Uh, Verse 18. Uh, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, straight off the bat, you might find this a bit unsettling. And the atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote a book about 100 years ago now called Why I Am Not a Christian. Um, and he explained why he wasn't a Christian in the book. I and mean, in those days, titles had meaning, didn't they? Um, and right at the heart of his case for why he was not a Christian was this episode. He said, listen, uh, whatever you think a Christian is, at the very least, the lowest possible view you could have of a Christian as of the Lord Jesus is that Jesus was the very best of men. Um, all Christians should be able to agree on that. He says, but I don't think Jesus was the best of men because he saw a fig tree and he was hungry and he got in a strop with it and cursed it and the thing with And that's why I'm not a Christian. He had some other reasons too. Um, my friend Matthew, um, who I spent many years trying to reach out to the gospel, I still am. Um, and for a while seemed to me at least to be fairly close. Um, he read that book by Bertrand Russell, and he found that argument in particular very convincing. Uh, what Jesus did to the fig tree uh, was a reason not to be a Christian. And do you know what? I have a fig tree in my back garden, and I've been nurturing it for five or six years now, um, and it hasn't borne fruit this year. Actually, most years it doesn't bear fruit, but this has been a particularly disappointing year, so not a single sign of a single fig at any point in the entire growing season. And you know what? I did not curse it. (laughs) It's still there in my back garden. And so you might think, yeah, what is going on here? What is happening? Well, I think the thing to spot is that it belongs with the bit before. Um, I tried to put that out. If you look on your handout where I've put the um, context bit, I've tried to show you that Matthew has deliberately written this up um, so that you see that they're parallel that there are two sign acts that belong together. The bit where Jesus turns over the temples in the temple and then what he does to the fig tree. Um, and you can look at the handout if that helps. In other words, it's not that Jesus is just kind of hungry and taking out his rage on this fig tree. I mean, he's trying to teach us something. It's another sign act that shows us who he is and what he's come to do. And to begin with, it points to the same thing, doesn't it? The temple was a building that had a lot of promise, but no fruits. And the fig trees the same. It was covered in leaves. When you see a fig tree covered in leaves, there's a lot of promise. We're, in, we're sort of looking like we might be beginning to be in season. The, the, the leaves are growing. I'm looking for fruits. A lot of promise, but no fruits. See, what Jesus does to the fig tree is a picture of what will happen to the fruitless temple system. And so far, you might think, so much the same as what's gone before. Verses 12 to 17, verses 18 to 19, they're making the same point. Jesus is going to judge a fruitless house. But the crucial difference between the two episodes is who Jesus is speaking to. So in the first half, he's speaking to the religious leaders. But here, he's speaking to the disciples And so that draws our attention to what comes next, verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. It's an extra point, isn't it? This is not just, about, it's not just about whether the fruitless house is going to survive. This is about the power of the Lord Jesus and about the power of prayer. Now, it seems to focus in, doesn't it, on the mountain. Um, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not endure what it has been done to the fig tree. But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, um, it will happen It's possible, and the way that most Christians have read this, um, is that this is just a very, very unlikely thing to happen, um, as it's basically impossible to say to a mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. Uh, Jesus is saying that you'll be able to do impossible things um, in prayer. Um, And of course, it is impossible. Um, I don't think they've ever ever tried talking to a mountain um, and telling it to go places. Generally, they're not very responsive, in my experience. Maybe you could try it yourself, um, if you're not sure actually that any mountain the disciples would be able to see at that point in time say to this mountain it would be at least 35 miles away from the sea and so not only would you have to be able to persuade the mountain to topple over but you'd also have to persuade it to do a fairly substantial airlift um, and kind of move 35 miles that's a lot of Chinooks I think um, if you want to achieve that Um, to begin with it's certainly about being able to ask impossible things it's possible I mean it's possible that the mountain in particular is significant. Uh, Maybe he's talking about the mountain that the temple's built on. Um, In which case, I guess that's quite a striking thought, isn't it? That the mountain would not only fall over, but that it would be taken away and moved elsewhere. That's quite a striking thought. Um, But I think it kind of amounts to the same thing. Because at the end of the day, what Jesus is saying is that there will be a way to pray And a way to pray things that are more extraordinary than anything you've imagined so far, even if this temple isn't there anymore. Did you notice verse 13? My house shall be called a house of prayer. Well, imagine that that house is not going to be there anymore. Imagine that it is judged. Imagine it withers up, that there is no future for that house. Is that the end of prayer amongst the nations? Jesus says, "Um, even... If you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. You see, the point is that those who believe in the Lord Jesus get something better than the temple. Actually, as you read through the passage, they get at least three things that are better than the temple or three flavors of the same thing. And so we saw that the temple was a place that was failing to bring healing. And we've already seen that Jesus is the one that you go to and receive sight and the lame walk in the temple. And we saw that the temple was failing to produce praise. But as Jesus healed people, the little children praised Hosanna and gave thanks to God. And now here's a third thing. The temple is a house of prayer, but the nations aren't praying there. And Jesus says to his disciples, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus get something better than the temple. Um, Insofar um, as Jesus' people um, his disciples ask, even the apparently impossible, they'll be hurt because he is the great house of prayer. And so Jesus has come to replace the temple with something better. Now, it's possible you don't believe him and you think, no, but hang on. Verse 21 and 22 just feels too extraordinary. And truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll be able to um, do not only what's been done to the fig tree, but even if you should say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Um, And certainly if you spend a lot of time literally praying for literal mountains to literally be thrown into the sea, um, you may discover that that um, doesn't happen quite so much as you might hope. And there are other things that you might pray for too, that you might discover don't happen as often as you might hope. Is Jesus really better than the house that has been destroyed? But of course, Matthew wants us to see that what is accomplished by Jesus and by his disciples leaves the temple in the shades. He wants us to understand that what is accomplished by Jesus and his disciples with respect to what the temple was for, leaves the, temp- the temple in the shades. And so all over the world, as his disciples go out to make disciples of all nations, people are receiving spiritual sights. And all over the world, people are drawing near to God in prayer. And the nations that couldn't pray in the court of the nations praying to the living God, the God of Israel in every nation as disciples are made and the gospel goes out. And all over the world, people are praising the God of Israel, even in barbarian London and even this morning as a result of the work of making disciples of all the nations. If the disciples were shocked at the power of Jesus' words against a fig tree, well, Jesus wants to say to them, you haven't seen anything yet. What is going to happen through you and through your believing prayers and the people who believe in me is going to leave the temple completely in the shade. Jesus has come to replace the temple with something better Himself and the people who draw near to God through Him. And what this means is that if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning, and if you're in the business of making disciples of the Lord Jesus, you are right at the heart of what God is doing in the world. You see, the heart of what he's doing is not in Jerusalem, and it's not the temple. You are the epicenter, are right at the heart of what God is doing in the world. So think of my friend Stella that I mentioned at the beginning. I and mean, She was right to want to be on board with what God is doing. I and mean, I was right to think she didn't need to go to Florida, because the fact is that wherever... And people are praying in the name of the Lord Jesus and making disciples of the Lord Jesus be ever so mundane and ever so boring that is right at the heart of the great work of God and doing something that the temple could never achieve. Establishing prayer and praise, the glory of God amongst the nations and giving life. Imagine that you're here as a student. Perhaps this is the first time that you're with us. Now, maybe you're choosing a church and you think, I want to choose a church which is going to be right at the heart of what God is doing. Now, that's a very sort of zealous and spiritual thing to think, isn't it? I want to choose a church which is right at the heart of what God is doing. And can I say that um, you should be thinking that, um, as I really hope there are people here this morning who are looking for dead churches that are not, places where god is at work and i hope if you're thinking about choosing a church you want to choose a church which is spiritually alive and where god is blessing the ministry and where god is working in power the question is what kind of a church do you need to find and the answer is you need to find a church is all about the lord jesus about trusting him and knowing him and making disciples of the lord jesus it'll please you to know there are a good number of those churches here in london And if you find a church like that, you can be absolutely convinced that you are right at the centre of what God is doing in this and in every age. Maybe after the news that we've had um, in the last week, not about the Middle East this time, um, but about the Church of England, um, and the fresh reminder we've had that the bishops are on a collision course uh, with us, um, maybe you're anxious about the future. And one of the reasons why we might fear um, the future, that collision, is that secretly we can't bear the thought of being sort of moved on ourselves. And we find the thought of meeting in a village hall with styrofoam cups uh, just too depressing. There's something kind of comfortingly respectable about being here, isn't there? Did you know that we go to the same church that William Shakespeare did, apparently, at least once or twice, There's something apparently respectable, reputable about being here. I guess the disciples would have felt the same thing, wouldn't they? As they faced up to a future um, where they weren't going to be focusing their attention on the temple in Jerusalem. We're going to be out sort of planting little house churches um, and little upper rooms all over the Middle East, uh, over the Mediterranean. Uh, Listen, 12 believers in someone's front room um, with the name of Jesus. And the commitment to do what he says has something far, far better than all of the great basilicas and cathedrals and abbeys and churches put together. And Jesus is the house of God. And Jesus is the place of prayer and healing. And Jesus is the place of life and praise. If you want to be at the heart of what God is doing in the world to establish God's praise amongst the nations... Well, all you need to do is to be engaged in the work of making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be it ever so mundane and ever so unimpressive. And if we're doing that, we can be absolutely certain that we are right at the heart of what God is doing now and forever. Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not only do what has been done to the fig tree, But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to praise you so much for the living Lord Jesus Christ and for the great work of the gospel that he has given us. And we want to pray that you would help us to see that where disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are being made and baptised into your name, and that there something is happening that everything that came before the Lord Jesus only foreshadows. And we want to pray that you'd help us to see that as we know the Lord Jesus, and as we seek to make him known, we're right at the heart of what you are doing in this age and in all the ages to come. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.